we'll read the even verses together out loud, uh, and I'll read the uh, rather the odd verses alone. The Bible says there, beginning in verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another uh, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with his smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. I'm going to preach a simple, this, a simple sermon this morning, titled this, The Purpose of Life. The Purpose of Life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that as we look into this passage today and we discover that you had a purpose, a very specific purpose for the life of Isaiah, Lord, you have a purpose for everything that you create, including us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to, to deeply and profoundly consider whether or not we're living our lives to fulfill our purpose for ourselves or your purpose for us. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage expositorily, verse by verse, both this morning and this evening, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, Lord, that you would show us and reveal to us exactly what you'd have for us out of it. Help our hearts, Lord, not to be hard and calloused, but Lord, to be tender and receptive. And Lord, where there is a hard heart, would you break it today? Where there's a calloused heart, would you rip away the callous? And Lord, would you help us to not be inoculated or used to preaching, the cadence of it, the rhythm of it. But Lord, help us to receive a blessing anew from on high from the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Here in this passage, we find a pretty amazing encounter between Isaiah and God. God uses the grand venue of heaven to grab hold of Isaiah's attention. You might remember in the New Testament, there was a similar experience had by Paul, who at the time was called Saul. And Saul, uh, Saul was an interesting setup there because uh, Saul was running from God, didn't want to have anything to do with God, didn't want to have, uh, uh, didn't want to be a follower of Christ, and God, uh, uh, rather that version of God, God knocked him off the, his horse there and got his attention through uh, a vision or a dream of sorts, uh, or rather a revealing. Here in the Old Testament, Isaiah, I believe, was already saved, but uh, was away from God and not following God's calling on his life per se. And God called Isaiah into heaven so that uh, he could uh, see exactly what it was that God wanted him to see and he could have that calling from God. He could know that purpose that God had for his life. A college professor many, many decades ago at D- Dallas Theological Seminary once put it this way. He said, in the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. Christians are stuttering. In the midst of a generation screaming 
for answers. Christians are stuttering. You say, Pastor, why is this church so different than the world? Because what the world has to offer chews people up and spits them out. This church is to be a contrast to the world, not a parallel to the world. I'm not trying to make the music of this church parallel the world's music. It needs to be different. Uh, we're not trying to uh, come around here and act like, look like the world. We're to be different. We're to be that beacon of hope that when people have tried it the world's way, they can come in here and they can find the truth and they can follow the truth and the truth can make them free. Christian, are you stuttering when the world is searching for answers? Or are you sure of yourself? Do you know what to say? Do you have the answers to help people through? A generation screaming for answers. Help us. Help us. Help us. Christians are stuttering. I must say that many years of my life passed by before I really understood that most people walking through life are hurting. Most people walking through life are carrying a heavy trouble in their life. And we put on a veneer, we put on a front like everything's great. But deep down inside, almost everybody carries some deep hurt with them. Whether it's a marital strain, whether it's a a struggle with a child or other relational struggle. Maybe they're struggling to find employment. Maybe it's a a medical struggle. Uh, uh, Maybe it's a habit they can't kick. And it has them down and out. And I'm here to tell you, my friend, that what the world needs is for you to love them. It needs you to love them, not to judge them. It needs you to help them along. It needs you to be there to give them the answers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine the light of truth in their heart and help them out. This same thing about stuttering was true during Isaiah's time. Isaiah had not chosen to dedicate his life to the proclamation of truth until God shook Isaiah through a vision to get his attention. The question that Isaiah was forced to answer here in the book of Isaiah was simply this. And if you're taking notes this morning, write this down. Sit or serve? Sit or serve? Isaiah, are you going to sit on the sidelines while your country falls into the depravity of sin and falls apart? Or are you going to get up and do something about it? What is it going to be, Isaiah? Are you going to sit on the sidelines and be part of the problem? Or are you going to stand up against the problem and proclaim? Proclaim truth. Now, I have chosen to give my life to proclaiming truth. But can I tell you, there's room for improvement in my own heart and in my own life. How about you, Christian? Are you sitting on the sidelines? Or are you serving? Are you serving? Wednesday night, I preached a very passionate sermon. It was supposed to be a Bible study. And honestly, I don't know what happened to the Bible study. It turned more into a full-blown hellfire and brimstone sermon. I was telling one of our deacons this week, to God be the glory and to God be all the glory. I don't know that I've ever had that happen before where I was preaching and I felt like I wasn't the one preaching. It was like God just took over. It was special. I would encourage you to go back and and go online and listen to it or get the CD. And, and you can hear God preaching through my mouth. Much like uh, Balak did when he stood over and blessed the people of Israel. It was God's words pouring out of his mouth there. Uh, but in that sermon, I made an, an impassioned plea uh, about the status of America. The status of America. 
Listen, you can put on fiscal glasses and look at our country and see a recovering economy on some level. Uh, you can see the housing market uh, starting to, to climb, uh, uh, climb back up. And it looks like America in some ways is on the uptick, especially if you're not watching all the cable news networks and you're just looking at uh, from a dollar and cent standpoint that America maybe is on, a, on, the, on the mend here. But I'm here to tell you to take off the fiscal glasses and put on the spiritual glasses. What you see is a totally different picture. America is falling apart. Morally, we are, uh, we are like the walls of, of Judah, the walls of Jerusalem, burned. And the, those that are pushing this sexual revolution, they're just riding roughshod over Christians. And, and religious liberty is supposed to now cave in and give way to this immoral revolution that's taking over our country. And I'm here today to say, Christian, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to sit on the sidelines or are you going to serve? You know, God, God called Isaiah to serve. And there was some progress made during Isaiah's time. Isaiah got to be around through some wicked kings. He got to be around through uh, some good kings, namely Hezekiah. But some of the prophets God called, he told them outright, you are not going to have any results. You're going to preach the truth and everyone's going to ignore you. We have a Tuesday evening visitation and we have a Saturday morning soul winning program. And some of you maybe have come and tried that out. And you think, Pastor, I went out a few times and I just didn't see any results. Can I help you with something today? God didn't call you to see results. God called you to be faithful. He's not going to line us up from from uh, uh, beginning to end, one to, to the last, based on how many people we led to the Lord in our lifetime. In that case, you know where Noah would fall? Noah would be in the back of the line. He preached for 120 years and he didn't have a single convert outside of his family. But you know what Noah was? Noah was faithful. Faithful. Say, Pastor, I tried going out on Tuesday nights. I tried going out on a Saturday morning and people just shut the door in my face and they were, they told me they were Catholic and what a waste of time. It's not a waste of time being faithful to God. It's not a waste of time. God calls you to serve, and you serve, and you don't see any results. You're doing your part to warn people about the upcoming judgment, the pending judgment of God. And I ask you today, Christian, are you going to sit, or are you going to serve? The average person is so worn out from the fast-paced society that demands so much of our time. They're so worn out from life's responsibilities from earthly responsibilities, that they don't have time for eternal responsibilities. I'm asking you this morning, are you out of balance? Are the earthly responsibilities weighing on you so much that your eternal responsibilities are getting ignored? Are you out of balance today? Christian, I ask you, sit or serve? Isaiah was faced with the same question, sit or serve. God raptured him up to heaven in a dream or a vision. Today we're going to look both this morning and this evening closely at this encounter between God and Isaiah. Let's quickly uh, uh, review seven observations, three this morning and four this evening from the story of Isaiah. Point number one of the message today, observation number one is this, the dream of Isaiah, the dream of Isaiah. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 6. 
in verse number 1. Isaiah 6 verse 1. The Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Now, uh, for a frame of reference, or rather a time reference, we see when it was that God called Isaiah up. It was the same year that King Uzziah died. And for years I would read this passage and I would think, okay, the year King Uzziah died, that's just helping us see historically when this was. But you do a little bit of digging and you find out that Isaiah was the nephew of Uzziah. This was his uncle. This was his uncle. This was a family member. Uzziah died, and I don't know how close Isaiah would have been to Uzziah, but I know this, that it must have hurt him to lose a family member. You know, God was about to do something great in Isaiah's life, but he chose to wait until Isaiah was hurt, was hurting. Some of you here this morning are hurting. In fact, many of you this morning are hurting. I'm going to tell you, God's ready to do something great in your life. God wants to draw you to Him through this hurt. Isaiah was just another Israelite stumbling through life. And then his uncle dies. God sees a tender, precious moment in the heart of Isaiah. And He calls him up in this vision to do something great in him. This dream. You're here today and you're going through a hurt And you don't understand why. You don't understand the reason. And you say, what is God trying to do uh, through this with me? You see a problem. God sees an opportunity. Let me say that again. You see this hurt in your life as a big problem. Why can't this work out different? Why can't this be different? Why do things have to go like this? And, And it's a problem, God. Why are you letting this happen to me? And God says, hold on a minute. What you see is a problem that you don't like. I see as an opportunity to grow you and to draw you to me. You know, I, 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 for every problem that there is in your life, every hurt and struggle that there is in, in your life, there are a hundred different reasons, there are a thousand different reasons why uh, uh, God may be allowing that happen or what God's trying to teach you through that. But can I give you a macro reason that God allows problems into your life from a, a, a just back up a little bit and give you a big reason, one big reason? Could it be God is allowing a hurt in your life because He's trying to draw you to Him? He's trying to draw you closer to Him. I, um, I, uh, Angela and I have to correct our children from time to time. I gotta say, in, in the world of parenting, I don't enjoy the process of chastisement. How many parents are with me on that? You don't enjoy the process of chastisement. You know what? It's a necessary one. And parents, you better get good at it. Or you're gonna raise a bunch of brats. Sometimes correcting my children involves sitting down and giving them a lecture. How many of you are glad you're old enough where your mom and dad don't lecture you anymore? How many of you are old and your parents still lecture you? <laughs> Some of your parents are dead. You can still hear your mom's voice ringing in your head, uh, kind of getting on you about something. There are other times with, um, with my child that the correction goes beyond a lecture. And there's corporal punishment administrated. And um, there's a way to do that that's wrong, and there's a way to do that that's biblical and right. And habitually, every time I have to administer corporal punishment to a child, my, one of my children, 
we finish that time with a hug and a prayer. A hug and a prayer. And we walk out of the room closer to each other than we were before I walked in the room. There may be a day, and I pray this doesn't happen, there may be a day where I walk in the room to administrate that corporal punishment. And when it's time for the embrace, I get pushed away and told, no, no, I don't want to hug you. You know what that would do to me as a dad? That would break my heart. Sometimes God spanks you, Christian. He brings a trial in your life so that He can embrace you. You imagine how much it must, much it must hurt Him when you push Him away. God allowed this King Uzziah to die. Isaiah most likely was broken in his spirit. God was trying to draw, God would draw Isaiah to him through this experience. In the Old Testament, it was a common thing for God to use dreams and visions to relay his point. You might remember Nebuchadnezzar and his dreams. You might remember Pharaoh and his dreams. In the New Testament, you might remember Peter and his vision that he had with the blanket of, of animals being lowered down. Uh, one might ask, does God still speak to people in this way? Let me first say that God can do anything He wants to do. God can do it whenever He wants to do it. Uh, God is not limited or put in a box based on some dispensation in the Bible. However, however, uh, I do not personally uh, remember or recall God ever speaking to me through a dream. And I don't ever know, I don't know anyone really well that has ever said that God has spoken to them through a dream. You say, oh, well, pastor, one time this angel came to me and he told me I was going to live another 50 years. You know what I would tell you? You put too many jalapenos on your ice cream. I would tell you that uh, you, uh, you, had a, you had a midnight snack that didn't settle real well with you. You need to go take some antiacids. Um, listen, God is capable of using whatever method He chooses whenever He chooses to do it. But it would seem that 1 Corinthians 13 teaches that this method of God speaking to us through dreams and visions has been closed. It would seem very, very clearly to that in Scripture. And the Bible, why? Because the Bible is completed. Here's how this works. Now, God does not need to speak to us through visions and dreams because He speaks to us through the finished Word of God. Everything God needs to tell you, it's right here. It's right here. And on top of that, He's given you the Holy Spirit of God. And so, if He needs to tell you something, He can whisper it through your emotions and your spirit. He doesn't have to call you up in a dream and a vision. But uh, Isaiah lived in a time where the Word of God wasn't written, and God would even use Isaiah to pin a portion of the Scripture. And so, we see here that God called Isaiah up into heaven through this vision or this dream, and Isaiah had an encounter with Almighty God face to face. So, notice in verse 1 of Isaiah 6 that the very first thing uh, Isaiah noticed when he got to heaven was how big and how powerful God is. Look back with me at verse number 1 there of Isaiah chapter 6. It says, uh, there at the end, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. What's that mean? His presence. It filled the temple. God, the presence of God, the very being of God, filled the entire place. So number one, we see the dream of Isaiah. Number two, we see the declaration of the angels. The declaration of the angels. God has seemed throughout the Bible to leave a lot of details out about the angels. 
However, here in this passage, look down in verse 2, we get a couple of details about the angels. It said, and it, and it stood, above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, okay? So this is a being with six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Now, if you look at the Renaissance paintings of angels, what do you see? You see the same thing you see with the Renaissance painting of Jesus. You see very effeminate creatures. Let me just quickly throw this in here. Jesus was not effeminate on any level. If any of these paintings you see that had, with Jesus that had long hair, Jesus did not have long hair. You say, are you sure, Pastor? I am certain. I am certain as much as I am alive that Jesus did not have long hair. You say, but I saw a painting and Jesus had long hair. That was painted by someone who didn't see Jesus either. And uh, that was painted during a time where they painted men to be very effeminate looking. Jesus did not have long hair. You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says it is a shame for a man to have long hair. And I'm not going to get into how long's too long and all that. If you look at someone from the back and it looks like you can't tell if they're a guy or a girl, it's too long. If you can tell, if you can tell their gender and you say that's a guy's haircut, then it's a guy's haircut. But if the Bible says that it's a shame for men to have long hair, then Jesus didn't have long hair. Let me give you another evidence there is that if you go back in the time Jesus lived and you look at the hairstyles back in the, that time and culture, they kept their hair shorter than we keep ours. So Jesus most likely was shaven all the way up to this top of his head because that's how they kept their hair back then. And Jesus uh, uh, fit in with the style of that day. I'm certain of that. But uh, anyway, the angels uh, are painted to look effeminate as well. You have these angels and they've got two wings and they're sitting in a cloud and they've got soft faces and they're playing a harp. Um, here the Bible says that the seraphim angels had six wings, not two. Two of those wings covered their face. Two of those wings covered their feet. And two of those wings they used to fly around. And why were the seraphim angels created? They were created with a purpose. There's the idea of the title of the sermon there, the purpose of life. What was the purpose of the seraphim angels? One thing, to fly around the throne room of God and cry out. Look down with me at verse number 2, or rather verse number 3. Look at verse 3. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy. What's that word holy mean? It means separated for a sacred cause. It means without blemish or sin. It means perfect. You know what those angels do? They fly around the throne room of God, crying out one to the other. One says to the other, He's holy! He's holy! He's holy! The whole earth is full of His glory. And the other one looks back and says, Oh, I know! Let me tell you! He's holy! He's holy! He's holy! The whole earth is full of His glory. You say, Pastor, how long have they been doing that? They've been doing that ever since they were created. And they're going to do that forever. They're going to proclaim that God is a God that is holy and that the whole the whole earth is full of His glory. The angels were created with a purpose. Uh, uh, several, I guess it's been about a year ago, my, uh, my little boy came to me, and my little boy's a deep thinker. He, he likes to think on a, on a deep level. And he said, Dad, if it is wrong 
for you and I to, to praise ourselves. And, you know, little kids like to, to brag on themselves. So, so do us adults. But little kids are not quite as subtle about it, right? They just come right out and do it. Uh, us adults, we find our sneaky little ways of doing it. But, Dad, if it's wrong for us to praise ourselves and be proud, how come God gets to be proud? Isn't God sinning by being arrogant and proud? How many of you have ever wondered that? How many of you are wondering that now? <laughs> it's pretty deep for a six or seven year old, isn't it? And here's what I told Matthew. I said, listen, I said, God does not like it when we're proud because we're stealing his glory. We're not to do that. You say, well, why does God get all the glory? Because he's God. Because he's perfect. Because he's sinless. Because he's all-powerful and ever-knowing and ever-present and ever-loving. Because he is the perfect balance between chastisement and reward. He's the perfect balance between mercy and truth. He gets to get all the glory. And he does not want to share his glory with you. Listen, I work very hard to make sure that as the pastor of the church, to God be the glory, great things He hath done. You say, Pastor, what is the main song we sing here at White Oak Baptist Church? Shortly after I became pastor, I called Pastor Mike in my office and I said, make sure at least once a month we sing, to God be the glory, great things He hath done. Because it's not about me and it's not about you. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the angels, the angels fly around heaven praising and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. If I could here insert this, and again the idea or the the title of the sermon is The Purpose of Life. And we're going to look at, uh, you might think I'm stretching these points out of the beginning of the verses, uh, verses 1 through 4 this morning. I assure you that what I'm about to say is the main thrust of the passage. And if you would like to see that, either read down 5 through 8 later or come back tonight and, and I'll show it to you in great depth. But what I'm going to say does fit the context of the, of the greater context of the passage uh, here this morning. The angels were created with a purpose. Can I tell you this morning that everything God creates, everything He creates, He creates with a purpose. Everything. Including you. God created you with a purpose in mind. God has something He wants you to accomplish in your life. Let me put it to you this way. No one else, no one else can accomplish this plan. If you drop the ball, then whatever it is, it won't get done. It won't. God created you and put you on this planet for a specific purpose. Christian, person under the sound of my voice, are you living your life to fulfill your purpose for yourself? Or are you living your life to fulfill His purpose for you? Let me help you answer that question. Let's take the small decisions you make every day. What you eat, what you wear, what you listen to, where you go, who you speak with. I guess in the digital age, what you do digitally. Let's add all those things up and and compile them because that is who you are. The books you read, what you watch on TV. 
Are you doing what God wants you to do with those things, or are you doing what you want to do? Do you know that God cares about what you order at a restaurant? You say, oh, come on, pastor. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That includes what you eat. That includes what you drink. You know God cares about the clothes that you wear? Do you know that God cares about the music you listen to? Do you know that God cares about the friends that you choose? Do you know that God cares about the places that you get in your car and go? Do you know that God even cares about the route you take to get where you're going? We just moved in up in Beacon Falls, and I'm trying to find the quickest way to get to church. Coming down Route 8, there's a bunch of ways you can get here. Amen? And so God cares about all those different ways and which way I choose. And I ought to be praying and asking God to show me which way to go. God cares about what you choose and what you do. Let me set that thought to this side. Hold on to that. I'm going to look, it's going to appear that I'm going in a different direction. I'm going to come right back uh, to this in a minute. I remember uh, several years ago sitting next to a gentleman on an airplane. And uh, anytime I fly on an airplane, I make it my goal to get the guy next to me to, to take the headphones out and talk to me. Amen? Uh, I, I generally try to target the quietest person in a room and, and try to get him to, 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 to speak. Uh, so I was sitting next to a gentleman on an airplane and we struck up a conversation, and lo and behold, it came out that I was a Christian and a pastor, and, and uh, we, we had a long conversation. I believe the flight was from Baltimore to Chicago or Chicago to Baltimore. I can't remember which one it was, but anyway, it was about an hour and a half, two-hour flight. and Almost the entire conversation, uh, I was witnessing to him and, and trying to see him get saved. And He threw a question at me that I've been asked many times before and, and many times since, and here was the question. Would a loving God... Send people to hell who never once heard the name of Jesus in their entire life. How many of you have ever been asked that question before? How many of you have ever wondered that yourself? Would a God send a person to hell who never once heard the name of Jesus in their entire life? The answer to that question is a very firm yes. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. Let me ask you a question. Is God unloving? Is God unloving? Is God unloving to send someone to hell who's never even heard the name Jesus and has had, as some would label it, no chance at salvation? How could He do this if He truly loves people? Actually, the answer is rather simple. Mankind deserves hell for their sin. That's what they deserve. If God gives somebody something they deserve, is he unjust? No, he's not. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 says this, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. John 3 tells us that we are condemned already. We're born on our way to hell. Listen, you're not born as a good person that's corrupted by society. No, you're born with a sin gene. You're born with a desire to do wrong. And that sin separates you from a holy God. And that sin sets you on a course to hell. And unless you make a decision to trust Christ as your Savior, you stay on that path to hell. And if you die on that path, that's where you land. Now, as a parent... 
I am just in punishing my child if they choose, if, if they do wrong. That is my job as a parent. And God is just in sending those who violate His commandments to hell. That was the ground rule. That was the ground rule set in place before the father of all mankind, Adam, chose to disobey God. God looked at Adam in the Garden of Eden. He said, if you eat that fruit, there's going to be big time consequences. You know why people go to hell? Because of their sin. They go to hell because of their great, 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 great grandfather's sin, Adam, that was passed down into them. So is God unjust in sending someone to hell? God is never unjust for doing that. He's simply giving them what they ask for. You come back and ask the question, so what about the poor souls who never hear? They're not, here's a word we hear in the political realm a lot, they're not privileged. They're not privileged. They don't get to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me explain it this way. Okay? Jesus fulfilled his responsibility by providing a way out of hell. How did he do that? Speak to me. How did he do that? Speak to me. How did he do that? He died on the cross. God created mankind, put him in paradise on earth. So don't eat the fruit and you can stay perfect. They ate the fruit, they were cast down. God came back in and said, okay, I'm going to give you a way out. I'm going to send my son to live a perfect life and die upon the cross so that you can be pardoned, to use a legal term, for your sin. Okay? Alright. That is my way I'm providing out for all of mankind. Alright? Jesus dies, he raises again from the dead, he walks the earth for about 40 days, he stands on the mountain, he's getting ready to ascend, he looks out at 500 disciples. And what does he tell them? He says, go tell the world. Go tell the world. So, what was Christ's responsibility in saving the people in the Middle East and China and Africa and South America and even here in the U.S. that never hear the name Jesus? What was his part? Right there. Right there. What's your part? It's to tell the people in the world. You know, I wouldn't at all be surprised if we get to heaven and God has a list of names that you are supposed to tell how to get to heaven. Wouldn't it all be surprised? And God holds that list up and says, you were supposed to go to Africa and be a missionary. You were supposed to go to Saudi Arabia and be a missionary. You were supposed to be go to China and be a missionary. You were supposed to be a missionary in the U.S. of A. in your neighborhood. And here are the people you were supposed to tell about Jesus. One day when Jesus judges the dead... Judges those who weren't saved. Judges those who never heard the name Jesus. There's going to be some Christian sitting in the grandstands who has the blood of that person dripping off their hands because they didn't fulfill their purpose in life. You say, Pastor, that's heavy. Listen, it's my job to tell you the truth, no matter how heavy it is. It's my job to tell you Look, I have a list in heaven with my names on it, and I, I probably have it, and I probably won't tell everyone on that list. But I sure do want to do the best I can for the rest of my life to tell everybody I can about how to get to heaven. I sure do want to. 
You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. You say, Pastor, but I don't know how. Listen, half the battle is the want to. If you want to learn, you'll figure it out. We can educate you. We can train you. We can take you out. We can show you. But if you don't want to, it's not going to happen. You gotta want it. You gotta want it. You gotta want it. You gotta want it. Are you gonna sit on the sidelines while the world goes to hell? Or are you gonna get up and say, I'm going to do my part? Which is it gonna be? Sit or serve? The angels were created with a purpose, and that was to declare the awesomeness of God. My friend, you have been created with a purpose, and that is to tell the world around you about the love of Jesus and how it can save their souls. The dream of Isaiah, number two, we see the declaration of the angels. Number three, we see the domination of God's presence. The domination of God's presence. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 4. We see here the Bible says, And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, speaking of God, and the house was filled with smoke. The first thing that Isaiah noticed was just how powerful and dominating that God is. How powerful and dominating that God is. Now, let me just say this about God. He is the epitome of meekness. You say, what is meekness? Meekness is not weakness. Yes, they rhyme, but they're not the same thing. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness, rather, is power under control. Write that down if you're taking notes. Power under control. It is having all the power in the world and knowing how to harness it. Knowing how to harness it. God is a gentleman. Oh, He's a gentleman. God uh, is not going to force Himself on you. You say, can you prove that? I sure can. Do you have a free will? How many of you, you chose what you're wearing today? Will you raise your hand? You chose, how many of your wife chose? <laughs> don't, don't raise your hand to that. Uh, you chose what you're wearing today. You know God did not come down to you last night and say, you have to wear this. God does not choose the music you're going to listen to. He doesn't choose the TV shows you will or won't watch. He doesn't choose uh, uh, your actions. He doesn't choose the foul language that is, uh, could, come, could pour out of your mouth. He doesn't choose when you fight with your spouse or not. He doesn't choose the damage that other people do to you or you do to others. No, He has given you a free will to act on your own. And God loves you, yes, but God gives you this free will. Why? Because God is a gentleman. He's not going to impose His will on you. He wants you to do His will and if you'll live inside of God's will oh there is a power that comes in. Listen you can live your life plugged into the outlet of God or you can live your life all on your own doing things your own way. There's a story about a missionary named uh, Dr. Jackson, Herbert Jackson. He uh, was assigned a car when he got to the mission field but he found that the car had a problem and that was that it had to get a push before it would start. How do you, how many of you remember having seen those cars where you had to push them? The manual transmissions. You gave them a push and, uh, and, 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 and then you, you, you get it going, flood the gas and, and, and you get it going. It was one of those type of deals and, and he had one of those cars where you had to get, get a push to get it going, at least he thought. And so there was a school right near his house and so every day he would get, uh, some children out of class and they'd give them a push down the hill and get him going and then as he made his rounds around town running errands, he would either park on a hill or he would leave the engine running. And uh, he was fortunate in two years not to have his car stolen. 
ill health forced the Jackson family to leave, and a new missionary came to that station. So the new missionary coming in was going to take Dr. Jackson's car from him, and he's there, and he's explaining this arrangement about getting the kids out of class and parking on a hill and all this. And while he's explaining this, this new missionary happened to be a little more mechanically inclined. He reached down, and he found a cable that wasn't plugged in just right. He gave the cable a twist, and uh, and then he stepped into the car while this explanation is going on, and he pushed the switch, and the the Jackson's uh, car fired right up with no push. And he was astonished. For two years he had been pushing that car down a hill and it was just one loose cable that wasn't plugged into the right power source. It was a loose connection. It was a loose connection that kept the Jackson family from putting that power to work. You know why some of you are struggling through life? You have a loose connection with God. You're not plugged into God. You're not plugged into God all the way. Look, um, you have a battery reserve. That runs out really quick. You ever had one of those appliances, one of those uh, electronic gizmos that could either be run on battery or by wall power? You ever had one of those? You know, maybe an alarm clock. Some of those alarm clocks will have the battery operated and you can plug them into the wall. You know, um, I, I just never put batteries in those things. I just plug it into the wall. Because as long as it's plugged into the wall, you're good. Some of you going through life and you're trying to run on your own batteries. You're not plugged into God. There's a saying that's gone around for years in Christian circles. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But the saying goes like this. The man that walks with God will always arrive at his destination. Can I tell you, I believe that. The man that walks with God will always arrive at his destination. You're going to have decisions in your life that come up and you don't know what to choose. Maybe it's who to marry or where to go to college or what career path. Maybe the career you're in is drying up and you got to find another career. Uh, uh, maybe it's uh, uh, some other decision uh, you got to make. And it's just not written in black and white there in the Bible. Can I tell you how that works? If you're walking with God, you'll always arrive at the, de- at the destination. Always, every time, always. Uh, but there was a preacher I heard recently that tried to change that quote around, and I believe what he did was just mess it all up. He, he made the quote this, The man that walks with God has arrived at his destination. I don't believe that. There is so much more to the Christian life than walking with God. Oh yes, you need to read your Bible. You need to pray. How many of you have ever found that if you skip a day doing those things, Problems start to settle in. Have you ever realized that? You're like, oh man, this is going wrong, that's going wrong, and ah! And God's saying, you need me. You need me. Some of you are like, man, I have problems all the time. Start reading your Bible and start praying. <laughs> That'll help clear up a lot of your problems. And God, God will uh, help you out a little bit. And you try to do things on your own, and God just steps back and goes, okay, ride the bicycle on your own, and just crash into the crash on the sidewalk. There, I'm gonna come along and and hold that hold the back of that bicycle for you and help you out. Uh, God, uh, God wants you to walk with Him. Why? Catch this. God wants you to walk with Him so that purpose for your life stays afresh and anew. Every day. Fresh and new every day. You say, Pastor, but when I read my Bible, I don't get anything out of it. 
there's a story about a man who wanted wisdom. And so he lived in a primal village several hundred years ago. He went to the top of the hill where the old wise man sat outside of his hut. And he walked up to the uh, old man who uh, waited in line, waited his turn, got up to the old man early in the morning and said, I want to have wisdom like you have wisdom. And the old wise man uh, said, okay. He had everybody in line wait there. And he took the young man down to the bottom of the hill where this uh, river was. And in the hands of the old man was a wicker basket, a a wooden woven basket. And he said, here's what I want you to do. At the top of the hill by my hut, there is a large vase. He said, I want you to dip this basket in the water and run up the hill and dump whatever water is remaining in that vase. And when the vase is full, come back and see me and I will tell you how to get wisdom. And the young man thought to himself, this is really strange, but I want the man's wisdom, so I'm just going to do what he says. Maybe there's some profound meaning in all this. So he dips that wooden woven basket down in the water, and he puts his hands underneath it, and he runs up the hill a good half a mile, and he gets to the top of the hill. Most of the water is falling out of the sides or sloshed out of the top, and just a little, just a, just a gulp of water in the bottom of that thing, and he dumps just that little bit of water down in that vase, and back down the hill he goes. He was a strong young man, so up and down the hill he went all day, and he, he wore himself out. He got down to the end of the day. He was exhausted. And he looked at the old wise man as the sun setting with about three inches of water in the bottom of the vase. And he said, okay, I'm never going to get this thing full. He said, what are you trying to teach me here? He said, I didn't get hardly any water up here. And the old wise man looked at him and here's what he said. You ready for this? You ready for this? Come back next week and I'll tell you. No, I'm just teasing. He looked at him and he said, You didn't get a lot of water transferred, but at least your basket's clean. And you think, what? What does that mean? And I'm going to be honest with you today. I have no idea. But I can make a very strong spiritual application from it. You read your Bible and you read your Bible and you read your Bible and you think, I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm so new to this. I don't understand it. And, and, and what does the book of Ezekiel mean anyway? And, and I tell you, that's a tough one for me too, right? Uh, you read and you read and you're like, oh, this is so hard. Can I tell you something? You may not think you're retaining anything, but you're getting your life clean. You're getting your life clean. You read and you read and you read and the water of the Word pours through you. And you know what the water of the Word does? It injects you with the desire to do God's purpose for your life. You know what I have found? Stay with me here. You know what I have found is that as I'm walking with God in my, in my private time with the Lord, His heartbeat becomes my heartbeat. His desires become my desires. Can I tell you what God's heartbeat is for you and me? God's heartbeat is that the world might be saved. That's His heartbeat. Every time a soul dies and goes to hell, it breaks the heart of God. Because He died for that soul. Every time God brings somebody across your path who's broken inside and looking for Christ, and you're too busy in life to worry about witnessing to them, it breaks God's heart. It breaks God's heart. Is His heartbeat your heartbeat? Is His purpose for your life being lived out through you, or are you too busy living life for yourself? Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. The purpose of life. Oh, there was a book written by a man a few years back.